Hi there, I'm Professor Christine Matz, the co-director of the Rose Study, Research Outsmarts Endometriosis, which is at the Feinstein Institutes at Northwell Health in Manhasset, New York. Femtech to me means studying menstrual blood and using it as a tool to better understand, treat and diagnose endometriosis and to improve all women's health. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with Fem Health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. Before we get into today's episode, I'm so excited to announce the release of the 2022 Femtech Landscape Report available right now at femhealthinsights.com. This year's report includes an in-depth analysis of the 2022 femtech market, including market size, growth trends, and key players. You'll also get an overview of the investment activity, including funding trends and notable deals. If you're an entrepreneur, an investor, work in an R&D or business development, and you're a professional interested in how you can learn more about the femtech industry, you will not want to miss this essential guide to the latest trends and opportunities in the field. So come and get it, y'all. It's free. Head over to our website, www.femhealthinsights.com and download your copy today. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Christine Metz, professor at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research at Northwell Health. Her research primarily focuses on identifying mechanisms that underlie inflammation, and most of this work centers on women's health. Dr. Metz is an author of more than 160 peer-reviewed papers. She was recently recognized as one of the top 100,000 scientists in the world out of 7 million based on her productivity and impact of her work. Dr. Metz is a co-director of the ROSE study, which uses menstrual effluent as a tool to study endometriosis and other uterine health disorders. The study aims to develop non-invasive methods for screening and diagnosing endometriosis. In this interview, we discuss what menstrual effluent is, how it can be used for screening for uterine conditions, and how the ROSE study could be a game changer for women with endometriosis. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the importance of studying the basic biological processes of the body and the current state of endometriosis. Learn more about the ROSE study and apply to be a participant by emailing rose, R-O-S-E, at northwell.edu, or just follow the link in our show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Professor Metz, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here at Femtech Focus. Yes, I'm so excited to have you. We chatted about a year ago about your studies. We were doing a consulting project and um, I learned about your, your work then. And apparently you said there's been a lot of progress. So I'm so excited to get that update today. Absolutely. Well, let's kick off the interview learning a little bit more about you and your background. Our listeners want to know how did you get to this part of your life where you're studying menstrual effluent? <clears throat> Excuse me. 
No, give us a little background on who you are and how you got here. Sure. I grew up in upstate New York and attended Cornell University, where I had my first experience with laboratory research. I actually studied the effects of high altitude on placenta development. Uh, And I really became fascinated with research and fascinated with women's health. Uh, And I stayed at Cornell for my master's. And I actually published my first research paper describing the effect of the menstrual cycle on measuring body composition. So I actually started my career in 1989 with that paper. Uh, I then went on and did my PhD at New York University in biochemistry, a little less exciting. Uh, I was characterizing a plasma enzyme. And in the late 1990s, I uh, soon after starting my own lab, uh, where I studied the regulation of inflammation, I began researching inflammation in the context of women's health, including endometriosis. Wow. And much of this work uh, on endometriosis actually culminated in the formation of the ROSE study. Incredible. I have a few questions I'd love to just ask about that. Sure. What, was there actually... <clears throat> A correlation between altitude and um, placenta development? Yes, but the greater effect had to do with women's socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. It was a population in Bolivia, uh, and the samples, I didn't get to go to Bolivia. uh, The samples were brought back to the university, but the greater effect was a socioeconomic status effect um, that had to do with smaller placentas and smaller births. Got it. But there was that question of, is it the altitude that they're living at? That's so fascinating. Um, And then you said you were um, publishing papers on menstruation, you know, decades ago. (laughs) What was the, you know, um, appetite for that? Like, were you like this one woman, you know, like that everyone was like, oh my God, what is she talking about? You know, or... Definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Although I had an amazing female mentor at the time, so it seemed quite normal. I grew up in a family of girls. My father had primarily sisters. My mother only had sisters. So my life was surrounded by females and it wasn't unusual for us to discuss those things. Well, that is so fascinating. And then you said you're studying inflammation and then that led to endometriosis and the ROSE study. Before we get into the ROSE study, can you tell us a little bit about the correlation between inflammation and endometriosis and maybe just give a quick definition of what endometriosis is for our listeners? Sure. Endometriosis is a condition that occurs when cells that look like cells lining the inside of the uterus, what we call the endometrial lining, grow outside of the uterus, uh, and they grow mainly in the abdominal cavity. These lesions grow in and around the uterus, the ovaries, the fallopian tubes, the bladder, the rectum, and other internal organs. And like the endometrial lining, these lesions actually respond to monthly hormones, and they cause inflammation and fibrosis. And of course, that's accompanied with pain. And chronic pelvic pain affects about 70% of patients with endometriosis. But patients can also experience pain with sexual intercourse, pain going to the bathroom, general GI pain, discomfort, 
Uh, and of course, it's a common condition affecting one in 10 people with uteruses who are of reproductive age. Wow. And so what is the Rose study? How did it come about and what, what is its goal? So the Rose study uh, stands for Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. What? And, yeah, I think you told yeah. me that before, but I love it the second time around too. <laughs> yeah. Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. That's our goal. Um, and it was co-founded in 2013 by me and my collaborator, uh, Dr. Peter Gregerson, who's a, a geneticist here at the Feinstein Institutes at Northwell Health. And in a nutshell, we grew the rose to better understand endometriosis so that we could develop better treatments and better diagnostics for patients. And we spent a lot of time in our early years actually talking with patients and providers. And we established ROSE to really tackle two of the big problems. Um, the first one is the lack of effective and well-tolerated treatments for endometriosis. And the second, which we focused much more on, is the long delay in diagnosing this condition, which on average could be up to seven to 10 years or even longer, primarily due to the need um, for surgery for a definitive diagnosis. Uh, and to tackle these problems, we took an interesting angle and have focused on studying menstrual effluent. Cannot wait to get into that. Um, <laughs> real quick, uh, so in totality, how long have you been studying endometriosis? Oh gosh, since the 1990s. Okay. How much has our understanding of that changed? I can imagine, you know, today we're still just, I mean, there's still an average 10 year diagnosis rate, right? So I can't even imagine in the 1990s what the average time was for diagnosis. How, how What are some of the major milestones you've seen in the last three decades of, you know, progress? So unfortunately, not much progress. I think in the last 12 years, there has been one drug um, put out there uh, that's new for treating endometriosis, uh, and it's not terribly different from the prior drugs. Uh, we don't have non-invasive methods for diagnosing it, and women uh, and those with period pain continue to be dismissed and don't get diagnosed in a timely manner. Um, so we really haven't made a lot of progress, um, and we don't even know what causes endometriosis. We're not any closer with that either. Um, however, we believe that studying menstrual blood will help us tremendously. Mm. So what is menstrual effluent? <laughs> so menstrual effluent is really just a scientific term for menstrual blood. Um, and in fact, it's not quite the same as what we consider blood that's in our periphery. It's slightly different, um, but it's a very similar product. Uh, and, and the scientific basis for using menstrual blood or menstrual effluent, whatever we want to call it, is that the cells lining the uterus that comprise that endometrial lining um, of those with endometriosis is very different from the endometrial lining or the cells that line the uterus in healthy controls. Uh, and that main difference appears to be changes in inflammation of the lining of the uterus. Um, and, of course, this lining is shed every single month as menses, allowing us the opportunity to collect menses and study it. Um, and also, we must not forget our own anatomy 
the uterus is not a closed system. So every time people have periods, period blood or menses actually goes into the abdominal cavity. Um, and it's believed that, um, and that's where most of the lesions occur. And it's believed that in healthy individuals, it's able to be cleared. And in people with conditions like endometriosis, it is not. Um, and remember, they're endometrial-like tissues growing outside of the uterus. So no surprise to study menstrual blood to better understand this particular disease. Yeah, I mean, this is incredible. We've talked about it briefly on the show before, but we have well over 200 episodes at this point. Can you please remind our audience, it's always such a shocking fact, like fact for me, you said that the uterus is not a closed system. And like, well, the first time I heard that, I was like, wait, 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 you, what are you talking, you mean like the vagina? And it's like, no. So please tell us how and why is the uterus not a closed system? So the uterus, which is that little um, pear-shaped center, right there, is connected to fallopian tubes, right? And those fallopian tubes have openings in them. So every month when people bleed, material, menstruation, whatever we want to call it, comes out of the vagina, but it also retrogrades into the peritoneal cavity, okay? Because the uterus is not closed. Um, So if you had surgery during your period, surgeons would see menstrual blood there. And actually that was first described in 1929 by Sampson as his theory of why people got endometriosis. Oh so my it's God. almost hundred years. Wow. 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 That is, that's crazy. I wonder if like men would have more appreciation for women on their periods. If they knew we literally have internal bleeding, that's not just dripping out. It's inside. Like we're literally bleeding on the inside. So I don't know, whatever we can do to get them to give us more days off from work and more respect. <laughs> um, so I'm for it. <laughs> <laughs> how much research has actually been done on menstrual effluent? Because what I hear you saying is like, this is almost like a monthly blood sample that potentially we could find out like biomarkers or health statuses from. So how much research has been done on menstrual effluent? Well, It was quite surprising to us when we started our studies, Uh, and that was back in 2013 that our IRB protocol was approved to start studying menstrual blood. Um, And it's going to be probably shocking to you and all of our listeners that prior to our studies, no one, to our knowledge, studied menstrual blood for any uterine health conditions or any women's health in general. I'm, do you have any idea why? Like, why wouldn't you take a sample that's already being provided by the body naturally? It is very unclear to us. It seemed so obvious that when we decided to tackle the diagnostic aspects, that this would be so obvious. And when we started looking around, nobody had done it. People have identified stem cells in menstrual blood. Um, but it was going to be harnessed for uh, cardiac ischemia, strokes, and other treatments. It had nothing to do with women's health. Other well-funded sectors of healthcare. Yeah. <laughs> Cancer, yes, exactly. heart disease, no <laughs> neurology. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, our first couple of years really required a lot of interactions with our ROSE study participants. And we learned a lot from them. 
And of course, we've had many people doubt our approach of using menstrual blood. But I have to say the evidence is in our publications that reveal uh, the utility for better understanding this condition, perhaps developing novel treatments and creating non-invasive methods for diagnosing or screening endometriosis. And in fact, I believe, and many others who I work with, believe that studying menstrual blood will also shed light on other uterine conditions, such as abnormal uterine bleeding, which we call heavy periods that some women really suffer with, uterine fibroids, female infertility, a condition probably no one's ever heard of, adenomyosis, although it's not so uncommon. It's a condition where the tissue lining the uterus actually grows into the muscle. Um, and it's usually diagnosed with a hysterectomy. There's also uterine infections um, and perhaps even early forms of uterine cancer could be detected. Um, and, you know, it's funny, we don't think about some of these conditions being so common, um, but the problem are they are not rare and they're not well diagnosed with our current practice. So we kind of let to think of menstrual blood as a treasured window into the uterus. I would think so. <laughs> um, yeah, you were talking about the processing of it, the collecting of it, like give our listeners a kind of a visual of how does one collect their menstrual effluent? So when participants enroll in the ROSE study, um, they fill in a questionnaire about their feminine hygiene products and whether they're interested in using a menstrual cup or have had use of a menstrual cup. So the primary method has been the use of the menstrual cup. But I have to tell you, in all sincerity, it will not work for all, and it does not work for those with pelvic pain, and it will not work for teens, which we also enroll in our studies. Um, so we developed a novel menstrual collection sponge that can be used externally. It adheres to the top of a pad and they wear it for four to six hours to saturate it. Once they collect their menstrual blood, either using a cup, a menstrual cup or the sponge, um, they put it into a container that we provide them and um, ship it back to the laboratory uh, where it's processed and analyzed. Um, so it can occur in the privacy of their own home or at work or their friend's house or wherever they happen to be. Uh, why wouldn't you just use a pad or a tampon? <laughs> so we tried um, to use some of those products. And unfortunately, um, most of our diagnosis is based on the cellular uh, components that are in menstrual blood. Mm -hmm. And they're extremely absorbent products, and they don't allow cells to survive easily for us to analyze them. And it also appears that there are things there that tend to kill some of these cells so that we weren't able to collect them. Mm -hmm. And we quickly, very quickly learned that, um, that we weren't able to use existing um, products. They were I mean, they're made to absorb, and that's exactly what they do, uh, and they do it so well that we're not able to use them. 
I found that to be one of the most interesting things last year when I was doing a, a consulting project on and menstrual effluent that it was, it's actually not the blood, it's the cells. And if you need the cells, you can't have this absorbent material collecting it because you'll just shear the cells or any, any scientist out there knows like, you know, sometimes you want your cells sheared. Sometimes you're like, no, I need them intact. <laughs> uh, and so that, thank you for elaborating on that for our, for our listeners. What is your like um your goal of making a like how far away are we from making a diagnostic for endometriosis like have you have you you have these participants in this row study what have you found So what we have published is that there are very clear differences in menstrual blood collected from people with endometriosis versus those without mm-hmm. um if I had to say it in one sentence Um, There are more inflammatory cell types and fewer uterine natural killer cells in patients with endometriosis compared to healthy controls who have more abundant differentiated cells, which are very important with respect to uh, embryo implantation. So the uterus obviously undergoes changes every single month to allow the implantation of an incoming fertilized egg. And it does this process called decidualization and healthy controls do that very well. And people with endometriosis tend to do that more poorly. Um, So we've identified that um, and we've clearly shown big differences between healthy controls and endometriosis patients. But we don't want to identify people with endometriosis. We want to identify those who are symptomatic and have not yet been diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so we now have a clinical trial that's going on right now. We call it ROSE2, and it's listed on clinicaltrials.gov and our ROSE website. And we're enrolling patients who are symptomatic and seeing physicians for a diagnostic laparoscopic surgery to definitively diagnose endometriosis, which is the the, uh, gold standard method for diagnosing endometriosis. Um, And then we'll compare menstrual blood collected before that procedure with the results of that diagnostic procedure to verify our um, assays. And we're hoping to submit our data to the FDA in 2024, provided we finish that trial in 2023, um, so that this screening method for endometriosis could be made available. Amazing. Are you still looking for participants? Absolutely. How Absolutely. can they, how can my listeners, if any of them, you know, is, do they have to be US based? Like give our, we have an uh, active listener base. So tell us, okay, give them so call to action. <laughs> if, if you are living in North America, um, you can apply to the ROSE study and register to participate by simply Googling ROSE and endometriosis. Um, and our study from Northwell Health will be either one of the first or the first items that pop up on the screen. And you can enter the website there to enter um, your study information. Um, But again, we're looking for participants who are willing to give menstrual blood prior to laparoscopic surgery uh, that they have planned for diagnosing endometriosis. And for those listeners who haven't done a clinical trial before, right? What you've done is the the basic scientific method of 
do we even see a difference in, in positive blood versus negative blood, like positive for endometriosis or definitely not endometriosis? You discovered some differences. You published it in a peer-reviewed article. So other scientists reviewed your data, said, yeah, this looks significant and real. Now you're doing the study where you are actually, um, women are going to get their diagnosis from the surgery where they explore her abdomen take some samples, hopefully come up with a diagnosis, but a lot of times not, i.e. why we need your thing um, <laughs> or something else, anybody, please. <laughs> um, and then what you're doing is, you know, you'll have your results and your goal would be that your results are, um, they correlate with how often the endometriosis is diagnosed with laparoscopic surgery, correct? That's right. That's awesome. right. And, and And just to confirm that a physician would order the menstrual blood test, um, mm. similar to the diagnostic surgery. And that diagnostic surgery is very complicated uh, in that in many times patients themselves put off the surgery because they don't want scars on their belly. Mm. Um, but also people are not referred in a timely manner to get the diagnostic surgery. And of course, we hear from our patients in the trial all the time um, that some of that is due to dismissal of pain. Um, but equally frustrating is that some of the disease can be microscopic and missed in their first laparoscopic surgery. So some patients actually undergo the laparoscopic surgery more than once, um, leading to you know repeat diagnostic surgeries. And we really hope with our approach, we'll be able to minimize that tremendously. How quickly do you think an endometriosis diagnostic can be created given this testing? So with our approach, um, patients collect their menstrual blood at home on day one or day two of their cycle. Um, they send it to the lab where it's analyzed and the process takes about a week or two. Um, of course, the, we have a low bar to beat of seven to 10 years. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so, it will be lightning. It will be lightning speed compared to what it is now. <laughs> oh my goodness. And if a diagnostic tool was developed, how long do you think it would take before it's in the market for doctors and, and physicians to use? So our plan is to complete our clinical trial rows two in 2023 to submit to the FDA in 2024. So as soon as the FDA would approve, they might have us do a verification trial, but we're not sure because one of our goals is actually to develop it as a screening tool to identify those who should go on to laparoscopic surgery. Just like quad screening in pregnancy, people have a blood test, and if it's positive, then they go on to an amniocentesis or a chorionic villus sampling, which is more invasive. We would run on that similar um, methodology or approach in our early years before we can really prove that it's very diagnostic. Yep, yep. And just to like elaborate on that a little bit for our listeners that a screening tool is different than a diagnostic tool because a screening tool essentially is like, 
hey, we're giving a, a review here and it's looking pretty likely that they might have this diagnosis and we're going to recommend you do more testing. Whereas a diagnostic test is you have this or you do not have this. It is definitive and you know approved to give you an answer where screening is, hey, we think you need more testing, right? Is that the right. good description of the two? Yes. And the only other thing I would add is that a screening tool should be used on very large populations mm. and a lot of younger people who can have endometriosis, whereas the diagnostic tool is saved for very specific individuals. So it's not widely used. Could this almost be something that every menstruating person should use when they start their period to find out if they have it? We, we kind of have this wild dream um, that annual exams with gynecologists will include a menstrual blood analysis uh, because we actually think that it will tell us a lot about our uterine and reproductive health that is a complete black box right now. Uh, we have a pap smear. Um, so why shouldn't we be looking into our uteruses every month as well? Yeah. I mean, I mean, if I have to take a, a bag of my dog's poop to the veterinarian every year, I think we can bring our menstrual effluent, right? Yes. And many women who have GI symptoms actually do a fecal or a stool test, yeah. poop test, whatever we want to call it here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, totally acceptable uh, to do. And um, we find it very acceptable among the participants in our study. We've had over 5,000 participants in our study. They haven't given us too much of a hard time collecting menstrual blood. In fact, many of them say, why hasn't this been done before? Yeah, actually, I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. What have participants and doctors' reactions been when you've you know, said, hey, can you collect your menstrual effluent in this little sponge and mail it in? Is there still strong taboos against this? Do you find women menstruators or physicians or any of the above like having some aversion to this? So I'm going to say menstruation, period pain, period products, menstrual blood, have been and seem to continue to be stigmatized, particularly in some subsets of the population. And I have had physicians tell me, I cannot possibly ask my patients to give you their menstrual blood. I cannot do that. Because However, they think their patients wouldn't do it or because they don't want to ask? I guess they think that their patients would oh. never do it. Well, that tells you what doctors know about patients because, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. They kind of, it's the ladder of inference, right? (laughs) Well, anyway, ironically, as I said, we've enrolled over 5,000 menstruators in our study um, and have recruited them mainly through social media, podcasts like this, news articles, and general information that's out there. And they all seem incredibly happy to help us understand this condition and to promote women's health. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had patients give us their inheritance. We're in the wills of a couple of people. Wow. They really want to support us. Yeah. Uh, we've had them have marathons and other fundraisers to support the study. Um, not asked by us. They actually want to help us. Uh, it's very interesting. 
Um, and so I think we have a lot of work to do to destigmatize menstruation. And the more we talk about it, the more we write about it, the more we do Instagram posts and Twitter and TikTok to normalize discussions of menstruation and menstrual pain, um, we're all going to benefit from that. I just tweeted the other day, um, why do bidet companies not market for anything except poop? Like there's lots of female specific issues that I would love a bidet for post-sex cleanup, menstruation, UTIs, post-birth, right? I was like, I listed all these things and I tagged hello tushy and they said, Oh, we do, we do. And they did have like an Instagram story, something that they shared. And, um, but I said, kind of jokingly, like, well, if your company's called Hello Tushy, you should make a Hello Hello Pussy one too. (laughs) I I love it. You know, it's like the television ads on TV showing sanitary pads with blue liquid. Blue. Yeah. It's like, can we all just get on the same page that this is what's happening? Like, yeah, but we have no problem discussing ED. (laughs) Yeah. Erectile dysfunction. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. uh, how is funding for this? You're mentioning you've been in putting in wills and like marathons. What is fun, the funding situation like? The funding is very, very low uh, in the United States. Um, the National Institutes for Child Health and Development is the branch of the NIH that funds endometriosis research. So all moms and children fall into that and reproductive health falls into that institute. And it is one of the smallest. Um no surprise. I think the I Institute is smaller, um, but it is one of the smallest. And compared to the number of people affected by endometriosis, the amount of funding is under a dollar per person or something like that. It's extremely small. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate to have Northwell Health backing our research because they believe that this is the right thing to do to push women's health forward. And they think it's a great idea without that funding. I would be sunk. Wow. And I mean, there, as a scientist, I know that there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of labs studying similar things, all getting funding. You are one lab studying endometriosis. And it's like hard for you to get funding. It's like, Oh my, it's so crazy. It's like, um, it's not like you're competing against 500 other labs all studying endometriosis. It's like you really are beg you're you're working towards that $1 per patient per year, you know, dollar amount that they have available. That's insane. Um I actually wanted to talk about the uh the impact this is going to make for women, you know, as we wrap up our interview here because, you know, we keep I mean, the obvious things are there, but I love sending my listeners away with some more talking points and data about like why else someone should care because women being in pain has not moved the needle for centuries. And so I personally, I do a lot of like economic burden or financial returns for your investment, things like that. And so can you give us some other statistics in terms of, you know, what the, what the impact would be if we could diagnose endometriosis earlier? So we think that an early diagnosis would have a really significant impact. The economic burden in the United States of endometriosis is estimated to be greater than 80 billion per year. Wow. And much of that is due to lost days of work, costs of extra medical visits, right? During this eight years of diagnostic journey, people visit on average eight doctors, uh, extra medical procedures, Infertility treatments, about 25% of those with endometriosis experience 
uterine factor or other types of infertility. Uh, And when young menstruators miss school every month for one to two days, it is difficult for them to achieve their full potential, right? Another burden is the emotional toll that it has, particularly when folks have been dismissed for years. So it's really hard to put an, a dollar value on those times, kinds of aspects. And as far as disease progression goes, no one knows what the difference of early detection will make because we've never had any trials because to my knowledge, there's never been a way to diagnose it early. So how would we know that an early treatment in a large population is actually going to change things? Mm -hmm. Um, But hopefully, we do believe that early detection will help patients. You know, it's really important to talk about the treatments. I know we haven't talked about that yet, but all of those drug therapies are hormone-based. They do not alter they do not alter the disease progression. The disease progression goes on. They treat pain. Some are FDA approved for treating pain and other are used for treating pain. So innovation is really needed here as well. Uh, And we've been studying menstrual blood in the context of developing new treatments, novel treatments for endometriosis. And maybe I can come back someday soon and talk about that. Um, But right now, the most effective treatment for severe endometriosis is surgery. Um, But again, it's not surprising to hear from our patients in our study that they undergo two, three, four, eight surgeries throughout the reproductive years. So we have no cures. Um, The treatments are not well tolerated and pretty ineffective. Um, it's, it's a challenge. We have, we'll, we'll make tremendous progress with just a few things. Yeah. It's really interesting what you brought up, which is that we don't have this long-term study of what would happen if we had early diagnosis. And I thought you were going to say, because no one's done it yet. And you're like, we literally can't because there is no early diagnosis. So therefore the experiment can't even take place. And that reminds me a lot of like the investment world for women's health and femtech is, you know, we, we literally don't have market values because no one's calculated it and, or products don't exist. Now investors get very spooked by this. They're like, what do you mean? It's a big black box. And I'm, and my argument is so was Uber, right? Like we, you, you couldn't really compare that to the taxi business, right? Like, so, but you took a chance, you saw the future. So, you know, unfortunately, I mean, there's thing, even PMS, we can't find a market value for PMS. No one's calculated how much women spend every month for managing their PMS symptoms, right? And it's like, well, if you're trying to argue to an investor that women will pay this much because they're paying this much now, like you need that data to to show. So this is just, but you also need products that they are actively buying to show how active they're going to buy it, you know, like, and without the product, it's just this, right? So it's, Incredible. I'm so glad we have someone like you leading these efforts, leading true (laughs) scientific research, because although I, you know, predominantly I'm on the innovation side now, innovations come out of data, right? And out of trends and out of discovery. So we need more labs like you doing really good research and being well-funded. We have two last questions for you that our listeners love. The first one is if someone wanted to start a femtech startup, what is an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? 
Oh, brother, I don't, I don't know if I could pick one. I have period pain, endometriosis, maternal and reproductive health, infertility, men, menopause, mental health. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And most of these areas need innovating. Um, I also think there should be more emphasis on prevention um, and a focus on teens. Why wait until people are 21, right? Um, we could focus on teens, tweens, and young adults, um, but at the same time, we need a lot of funding uh, for these innovations to occur. <laughs> yeah, a little little off script here, but you mentioned something that is a current event right now, which is Florida is essentially banning schools from talking about periods up until like eighth grade, and which is like 13, which is when I got my period personally. And I was I was kind of average. There's many girls and people that have it way earlier. Um, how do you think that? potential law affects what you're working on in terms of endometriosis and early screening? It's it's devastating. It is just two more steps backwards. It's very difficult to make progress when they say you can't even talk about this in school. It's like banning a book that has to do about menstruation. I mean, it's ludicrous. Um, I think that, I, I don't know how anyone could live in Florida under these yeah. circumstances. Yeah. I don't even want to visit the state now. Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I felt that way for several years and have very rarely ever visited Florida. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's really befuddling to me, um, that people accept it. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't understand it. Yeah. It's all of it is crap <laughs> for lack of a better term, but I, I see their, you know, the talking points they use for not talking about the no say gay. And, but when yeah. you start talking about don't say period, it's like, really? this is literally our bodies. And I understand like, sexuality don't say is our asthma. bodies too. Yeah. Like, What's don't the difference? say, yeah, What's don't the say difference? legs. Don't say legs. Don't say digestion. It's like, right. how is this not, how is this off offending anybody? <laughs> this is literally just how our hair grows, how our bones grow. This is how our, our uterus maintains itself. <laughs> like this is what it is. So this is what we are comprised of. Yeah. Thanks for going down that little rabbit hole with me. Our last question <laughs> is, uh, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Money. <laughs> Money. Um, I think we need to raise money to support solid innovations and we need to show good results and success. I think that's going to be key. Mm -hmm. um, I think femtech can't just be dreams and ideas and high hopes that we need to have to deliver products or resources or services that will actually help women lead more productive lives and more fulfilling lives. Um, I think we need to be as inclusive as possible. Um, people with uteruses. I mean, we just have to be incredibly inclusive and bring everyone to the table during the discussions of how to do things, uh, because I think everyone's words count. Uh, and finally, uh, back to the same word, I think to be successful, it's going to require investments and funding. It's really an investment. People have to understand that it's just, they're not just giving money away. It is an investment uh, for the future. Uh, and I think if we see it that way, uh, people would maybe uh, partake in it more. Uh, Professor Metz, if there was a way for our listeners, if anyone wanted to donate to your research, is how, how could they do that? 
Uh, they could do that by visiting our Rose website and emailing us at rose at northwell, one word, dot edu. Rose at northwell dot edu. Professor Metz, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really am inspired. Keep up with the amazing work. Can't wait for an update. Thank you so much for hosting me and allowing me to share my story. Thank you for listening to my interview with Professor Christine Metz. Learn more about the Rose Study and apply to be a participant by emailing rose, R-O-S-E, at northwell.edu or following the link in our show notes. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.